This podcast series is part of Hashtag Hour, a new grassroots project that brings together personal stories of all backgrounds to widen discussions on existing and important issues that are often silenced. Interested in the project or want to contribute to our work? Check out www.ourcontext.org. What does it mean to be a British national, the son of a Filipino mother and Nepalese father? In this episode, Chris shares with us what it was like growing up in the Philippines and in England, and how these experiences shaped his relation to his identity and the issues around racism. I'm Fumi, this is Hashigar Racism, and this is the story of Krish. Krish was born to a Filipino mother and a Nepalese father, and spent the first seven years of his life in the Philippines. Growing up, Krish said he was in a bubble as he went to international schools and was surrounded by English speakers and students from different countries, primarily U.S. Americans, due to the American influence in the Philippines. In his last year before moving to England, Krish switched schools and would experience a new environment. That was a funny final year in the Philippines because I was in between schools and I just needed to find an interim place to just continue my studies. And I went to a public school. I think that experience in that public school where, you know, the classes were in English, but hugely contrasting to any experience that I had in, in the Philippines, which was growing up around sort of foreign people in quotation marks because I had been amongst my kabayan which is countrymen Filipino (laughs) Um, and you know I would be speaking English to them and I I noticed they would sort of turn and run away I I didn't really make many friends um, during the breaks where we would be speaking Filipino outside of the lessons so that was call it foreshadowing for what's to come when I when I moved to, to England at the age of eight, Krish moved to Poole, a town in southern England, with his mother, grandmother, and step-grandfather. He says he would encounter bullying for the first time. In England, we have first schools, middle schools, and secondary schools. I know that it's different in some areas, but in my particular area, we had a first school, middle school, and secondary school. So I, I had joined the last year of a first school, uh, and I grew up in a place called Poole which was predominantly white. I, I look back at the photos, um, the school photos in, in Poole, and I was the, the only brown kid in the whole class. <laughs> are, we, are we allowed to say brown kid? <laughs> um, and the significance of that didn't really strike me until I sort of grew up and made sense of it, because... I remember feeling excited and wanting to join in with everyone, with people that I had known to grow up around, white people. Because in the Philippines, you don't really tend to bump into white people in the 90s unless you're in certain areas, um, certain cities. And I I didn't grow up necessarily in the bigger cities in in the Philippines. But with that said, I was familiar with, you know, the elusive whites. (laughs) So... When I came to England, it just felt like, you know, I was reintegrating with people I knew. However, what I didn't realize is that they had never seen anybody like me. (laughs) And I had never really experienced bullying um, up until I moved to England, actually. I was very fortunate. Actually, I I take that back. (laughs) There was this one kid in the Philippines that kept on pinching me, but he was a minor. He's, you know, outsider. Anomaly. But anyway, um, uh, when I moved to England, I had never really experienced bullying to, to this extent. It was, it was really quite a sh- 
strange and one memory I had is you know you try to fit in you try to fit into the friend groups <laughs> and this sounds like such a funny story but I think the significance of it is quite quite important so I wanted to join this little friend group when I was uh, about eight years old in the first school and I remember to join this group I had to beat one of the guys in, a, in a, just a sprinting race you know something silly this guy I beat in the sprinting race and he was kicked out of this group and I joined this I joined this little group I was like, I was like okay okay I, I'm in the guy that was kicked out, I think, continued to throw some slurs at me, called me a packy, which I had no idea what that meant. I just knew the, I guess the, <laughs> from the tone and the way he was saying it, what he was doing is, you know, all the all this kind of stuff. I knew that he had it in for me. I remember it got so serious that the teachers started getting involved more so, even though they seemed to be minor things that I would see around in, in the playground, like knocking food down to the floor and all this kind of stuff. Um, that was interesting. I'm not saying that um, I suffered it throughout my life, but this this was my first, my first encounter with bullying. Trish says the bullying got worse in middle school. So I was the oldest of the kids in my first school, and you don't really bump into the other ages really in first school, but in middle school, I was the youngest of what was, I think there was one other person of colour in the school, and she was in my same year or grade in a separate class, so I didn't really get to speak to her. But also, you know, on my side, she was one of the first, um, she, she she was black, and she was one of the first black people I had ever, I had ever met as well. I told you I was. I grew up in a bubble in the Philippines as well, so I was exploring this new life myself. But with that said, I, I don't think I had a curiosity to know necessarily more about it. I was just like, okay, that you know, I think I was excited to see you know somebody else of a person of color. But I, but you know, I was maybe nine. I, <laughs> I didn't think to you know go and connect and <laughs> you know discuss you know the nuances around being a person of color at the time right you don't you're really young and you're still trying to fit in and this was when i think in terms of my life and people reacting to the color of my skin this was the um this was probably the worst <laughs> uh, i'm happy to say that i haven't had this in later life but this was this is really quite important because I, I think it makes this experience made me realize that ignorance is very present and is grows and spreads in communities. Pool is an area in the south coast of England where, like I said, it's predominantly white, and uh, I think typically socioeconomically, it's you know there's a lot of um, working class folk over there. With that. You know, even though I'm talking about my school experience here, I also had my my friends that I had at home. Uh, my name's Krishna, and I'm Filipino. So this is when my name started coming to light that I was odd and different, and that you know people were asking about this. So my, my name, <laughs> but just to start off, they used to spell my name K-R-I-S-H-N-E-R, just because of the accent, Krishna. <laughs> but, you know, British accent, Krishna. Anyway, um, and I remember thinking, oh, why are they writing my name in this way? <laughs> I don't know, I never understood it. But then um, when we started having religion lessons and learning about the gods, uh, Krishna, I remember you know, the spotlight being on me, but some kids sort of making fun of that, especially, 
local kids that would come along after school go to our garden outside and like um we had a really nice garden that we were proud of had a had a filipino um i'm not sure if it's a tradition but filipinos abroad here in the uk tend to plant a tree in their front garden called the anahal tree and <laughs> you know just as a sign it's i think it's native to uh, native species of the philippines so you know seeing it as this tropical plant up front with a garden it was beautiful um, and it symbolizes you know it's Filipinos inside this house. So we had a lovely garden. These kids would come over and just um, sort of stamp on our holy grass and like make fun of Krishna as in the name. It was, I really didn't understand why they were doing it. I didn't, I didn't get it. Right. But it was, <laughs> and you know, kids, kids, you know, the phrase kids can be mean <laughs> is, uh, yeah, this is really well and true here in, in this experience anyway. Um, I remember my grandpa actually standing up to these kids and just telling them to, to you know, do one and go go away. What are you doing? <laughs> and you know, I remember seeing him in a, in a different light from those days. I was like, no, he, he's really got my back here, which which felt really nice because at a time when you sort of come in and you uh, and you um, sorry, <laughs> Ooh. at a time when you kind of come in and you just like, you feel like an outsider so much and you're so excited and then you're just kind of faced with all this, I don't know, these horrible people that you don't really understand why they were being horrible to you at all, both in school and outside of school. That kind of became, I don't know, draining. Prish says one thing in particular got him through middle school, rugby. Something that I did really get into in, in secondary school was rugby. I think, you know, I built some confidence in me. Before discovering rugby, I had sort of been this fatter, nerdier kid, loved playing Pokemon cards, loved my white chocolate Kit Kats as well, <laughs> and not and didn't really do much sport. So this was the first sport that I got into. It was part of a team. I felt like, you know, First team sport as well, so there's probably that sense of belonging into, and you know, you all trying to achieve this thing. So, gosh, <laughs> as I say this, I realise that, that that was what sort of brought this sense of belonging as a team and being integrated as part of a group. And this was probably one of the first first experiences of that, actually. I, and I hadn't realised that. <laughs> But no, it's um not only that, but then you, you start getting into the sport, and um, I'm not sure whether you know, but um, uh, rugby is huge in the Pacific Islands, like Samoa and uh, Tonga and Fiji, due to the British influence. But then I started seeing, uh, I started watching rugby and seeing these sort of the, these guys on TV that kind of you know same skin tone as me, you know, like played the same sport as me. So I. I I think I started to develop some like role models around this time, right? Because I, <laughs> um, so I think role models, when you know it's an abundance uh, for, for, you know, you don't really realize what it's like when you don't have anybody that you can necessarily relate to in terms of the way they look. And I know it's very based on the way they look, but when you are a younger kid, you know, trying to you know, and being more aware that you are different to other people, you you see people that you look like and that are successful in what they're doing and they're well liked when your experience have been so vastly different to that, right? 
So I think that's why I, during those years, getting that role model was really quite, I don't know, important to me at the time because I was like, okay, this is, I wasn't not very confident and gosh, my confidence was absolutely falling to the floor, especially after that experience. So anything to pick me up and sort of to fix that was, you know, really needed. And, you know, for me, seeing these rugby players, um, there's a chap called Manu Tuolagi. Well, like I looked up to him at the, at the time because he played for England. He, he's Samoan, but you know I had similar haircut to him, and you know I kind of aspired to like kind of beef up, hit the gym, and kind of like do that. You know, at the time, just to you know, as, as a role model, I laugh at it now because it's, it's so funny how how <laughs> how you think about it as a kid, right? And what what you go and do, but and you know, even these days. I do have role models. Uh, I look at those very successful people in my world of work that have achieved amazing things. And I want to kind of be like them. My mentors are my role models. Um, you know, none of them are Filipino, half Filipino, half Nepalese, right? Um, a couple of them are people of color, but like they don't necessarily have more weighting than those that don't. But we can relate on more things, perhaps, in, in terms of our journey. Chris reflects on the relationship of his Nepali and British identity. I never knew my dad growing up. He left when I was very young. So because of this, anything about Nepal had sort of not been relevant to me because I knew nothing about it, nothing about it. And, you know, growing up, I identified as Filipino because I was born in the Philippines, but I never had, never placed any importance on the fact that I was really half of my half of my genetics is you know i'm nepalese right so um and i think for a combination of reasons that i really did not identify even acknowledge i was partly this one people would ask i would not even mention this aspect but now i think growing up i i had become more more in tune with this that you know this is an area of my life that i am part of i'm i am you know, somewhat interested in to, to know, knowing more about, I guess, this side of myself. Um, and I never met any, anybody from Nepal until I realized, until I moved actually for my first role out of university to um, a place called Camberley here in the UK in Surrey. So Camberley is an army town, a military town, sorry. And um, a lot of the Nepali families that had moved over to the UK from the war had settled in this area of Surrey. So I went from having never seen or interacted with any Nepalese people to, wow, there are so many people that look Filipino, but I'm not sure if they are Filipino because <laughs> they don't look fully Filipino, but like, oh my gosh, they look so similar. And they turned out to be Nepalese. They, they'd smile at me walking along because they'd think I'm Nepalese too. I think, and I, I can't gauge whether I look more Nepalese than I do Filipino, like, but I'm me, right? <laughs> So, um, but it's it's a it, it's a funny thing because this is going to sound like a really funny summary, but Nepalese food is really fantastic, and um, you know I started getting more more interested in in this because uh, learning more about the history about how they came how they came about to settle over here, how you know how, <laughs> I, I I don't have any Nepalese friends, uh, nor do I really have many Filipino friends at the moment. So it's uh, I it's something that I. I want to to meet more to to know more about like I guess where they especially here in the UK and more about their journey because it's it will be you know interesting to hear and whether I identify as 
Nepalese yet? I guess so, but I don't know much about it. <laughs> Which I'm actually, you know what, I, I kind of feel funny about, because this is part of my identity and I don't know too much about it. My first interaction with, with Nepalese people had been when I was uh, 24 moving over to, to Camberley. That's a long time in my life, absolutely not acknowledging the side of my, the side of my, my myself. It's such a funny journey about what is identity. I had to do uh, everybody in the UK um, just uh, a couple months ago. I had to do this thing called the census. They do it once every ten years, and they just collect lots and lots of data about you know everybody here in the UK, what they identify as, what they do for a job, etc. I remember. You know, they, they asked me, what do you identify as a nationality? And I answered British because I, I, I am British. But I, and then I reflected on that. I'm like, at what point did I begin to identify as British? It wasn't at the point in which I got my British passport. So, yeah, I, I, just a bit of context on that. I, I came over to, to England as a Filipino with my mum when I was seven. And I got my British citizenship when I was around 10. So. You know, at 10, I had just about lost my American accent, I think. I was still learning. I was still feeling like a complete outsider, as I was telling you earlier. So I definitely did not feel British at the time. huh? And I think, you know what? I, did, I didn't feel like I was welcome to call myself British as well. Like, I didn't feel like I belonged to this group. I was like, what, what does this mean? Push says that people have a hard time reading where he's from, and as a result, he gets different stereotypes thrown at him. He also says he sometimes plays along with his identity, especially with those who are close to him. I've never been stereotyped, I don't think, which is really... Well, actually, I lie. I have been stereotyped, but incorrectly. Over here in the UK, they think I'm... It's not abundantly clear that I am Filipino, right? They think, oh, you... You could be Chinese, so let's ask, like, in terms of the <laughs> some of the slurs that have been used. You look Chinese, so let me call you a chinky. <laughs> or, hmm, you, you've got a bit of a tan, but you've still got a bit chinky eyes. But I think you probably are more Pakistani than Chinese, so I'm going to call you a Paki. It's so funny how that works, right? <laughs> and, and also how all you can do is laugh at it, right? If you, you get sucked into it and try to correct somebody's racial slur on you, you're not gonna, they're not going to be um, receptive to whatever you say at that time. So sometimes I just laugh it off because that it's not worth worth my time. But I, in, in laughing it off, I do wonder what their thought process is when they deduce what, what slur to call me. <laughs> but I think it's, it's interesting also the cultural differences on this because I spent some time in Argentina picked up Spanish and my partner right now is also Spanish and she she's hilarious hilarious person and kind of you know we've got to that level where you know she finds it so ironic that people don't know where I'm from and that I'm Filipino so I'm playing on this irony when there's a group of Asian people she always says oh your family I'm like oh I haven't seen them in such a long time. You know, we we have this joke, but my God, she made this joke out loud to me in front of one of her white friends, and she and the white friend's like, "You can't say that to her," and I was just like, <laughs> "Like, I don't think she gets that this is a joke that I'm totally okay with, and that it, it you know, it's a, you know, it's one of those things." Pish reflects on when jokes are appropriate to make. 
it's always about the intention, right? It's always about what the intention is. And I know that my partner is not racist, nor stereotypes people in this way. And she she loves the use of irony. <laughs> and we laugh at we laugh at this together. So when she says that, I kind of get like I, I I do get not kind of get I really get at what level she's she's making fun of, and it's hilarious. I do find it funny because this is we we've been so exposed well i've been so exposed to it and she knows all about my my experience with it that it's just it's now funny to just sort of, between us obviously laugh at this this isn't a joke that kind of goes on the outside just because of the level of understanding that people have and when it did slip and leak like in the example that i gave you that was the reaction <laughs> so you know some jokes are only okay said between yourself and so and that is one of them so but yeah how would i react if somebody said that to me outside that didn't know me i would try to gauge their intention and if they didn't know me i would probably guess that intention is probably somewhat malicious <laughs> yeah i probably wouldn't react to uh, oh i wouldn't take too kindly to it but probably brush it off and this is the thing when it comes to strangers and what they what they say and do i try not to waste my breath sometimes these days because people that tend to say these things aren't very receptive what i do respond to is someone genuinely asking like hey krish like oh um i heard someone call you this where are you actually from and how do you feel about that you know if, if they're actually interested and they're coming from a place of wanting to know more and curious about like my background because they, they they just haven't met somebody like me oh entertain that and let them know absolutely but just because that's what builds to this level of understanding and i'm happy to say quite a few people have actually just, like come up to me and just said like oh, tell me more about this because around the time of black Lives matters actually like this this wave of people sort of becoming more cognizant of what's happening around them unconscious bias systemic racism all of this kind of stuff it's it, all the good stuff huh, that we should we should be more conscious about that's happening around us. I'm, I'm really happy to see this wave change. Pish currently lives in Wembley, London. He says moving to a more diverse place influences understanding of racism. However, he makes note of one particular word that has become more commonly used over the last few years, a trend that he finds worrying. I've moved to an area here in Wembley where there are probably more people of colour that you see walking around on the streets than you do um, like white people, right? And it's um, it's a really interesting dynamic over here because I know that I'm probably not going to fall victim, I think. I hope I hope that I don't fall victim to a sort of racist attack here because I haven't in years since moving to university, actually, and moving away from pool, going to more sort of diverse areas. I find that People are more understanding and accommodating for <laughs> people that don't share the same skin tone as them, which is interesting because people do call people out. I've seen it and it's and it's great. And I think moving to this area as well, I follow the local pages about the area and it's typically like, you know, given the population over here, the population's uh, split, you, you'll find the same within the, the followers and pages. And they tend to post, like, you know, contents around parodying. They parody sort of the racial stereotypes and what happens around here. And you see in the comments how 
it's almost like anti i hate the term anti-racism it's still racism like there's still racism coming from i guess more against the whites there's a term that's been created that's used in the area i live in in london um they're called greys they call them greys gray people i was like huh and it's a derogatory term that they use against white people and it's uh you know off-white right which actually funnily enough i was called uh, growing up <laughs> they called me off-white i was like i remember getting really pissed off when they called me off-white i was like what do you mean by this and why have you raised this like where has this come from <laughs> it was so like out of nowhere as well and not only that but like quite a few people started like laughing at they started calling me off-white and i, I just these were actually my friends. I remember not really not being happy with it, but also at the same time feeling like I couldn't, I couldn't call it out because I would be taking the joke too seriously, you know, too personally, and this kind of thing. Uh, and that was a that's an interesting aspect actually. Um, nowadays, I would, you know, I'm a lot more comfortable with what I, and in tune with what I like and what I don't like. I'd probably say, hey, you know, I, I, I don't really feel too comfortable with you calling me that. I know it's coming. Process is doing, but yeah, it's not landing too well with me. You know, it's just that level of communication is needed, right? But yeah, sorry. <laughs> and that's off white, great. But now it's funny how it, the term is now being used by sort of people of color to, to white people. And, and just, this is concerning for me because it's becoming a joke amongst the sort of people, of, like, you know, brown community calling white people this. And yeah, it's similar to people calling like black people the n-word right and just sort of just casually between them it's exactly the same what's the difference except for the the years and years of um <laughs> history that probably means that other word is really really you know carries that history with it this one's a new term but in terms of its significance and what, what it's trying to do is exactly the same right against the background of his experiences and reflections Krish has the following to say about what he thinks it takes to be anti-racist. Know your intention. Be aware of the way your intention may be perceived. And words are very powerful because you can't be in control of the way someone may perceive your words. But if, if you think about the way you are dealing with people that you're not too familiar with, because racism isn't just between one race despite our our mass understanding of it having focus on certain groups. It is present inside the same race. And it, it is just be very aware of your intention and why you're saying certain things. And maybe take a step back and think, oh, you know, I said that, but what is, you know, why did I say that? What was the intention of that? And where was I coming from? And you can think it's a joke. You can think it's, you know, it's because it's lighthearted, you know, it's it's okay. But then, yeah, your intention was joking, but think about how this, what you've said could be perceived by somebody and why they would perceive it in that way. And having a better understanding of why someone may perceive it in that way, it leads to that greater empathy and will move away from this concept of racism and lead to a better understanding, in my opinion. And this is all the way I'm trying to be more anti-racist, <laughs> as it were. Because I'm, I'm guilty of a few things, right? Uh, it's a, I, I put my hands up and admit that. Um, yeah, it, it, and but knowing that, you know, stereotyping is, is does not hold true to what the reality is as well. It, and being very aware of that is a, a good first step in being anti-racist.
can find more information about racism aimed at Filipino and Nepali communities in England, as well as other articles, books, and videos, Chris recommends people to take a look at on racism on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find the transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and hashtag our racism. See you in two weeks. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Introductory score by Luca Nioi. Other music by Pete Morse, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. A big thank you to Krish for taking his time and reliving for us some of his painful memories, particularly from his childhood, and sharing with us timely and important reflections on this issue. <laughs>